Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. If you've never heard our young writers present their work, you're in for a treat. We've drafted a number of students from our in-house and outreach workshops to present their original fiction, poetry, and nonfiction. And when we say original, we mean it. Come and listen in on the future of writing. Leave inspired. Welcome to the Youth Draft. How's everybody doing tonight? Yeah. Gorgeous Friday, huh? Not bad. Perfect night for a reading, I think. Yes. My name is uh, Mike Henry. I am the executive director here at Lighthouse Writers Workshop. Um, I'm not only the executive director, I am also a huge fan of the youth program here. Um, I am also uh, a proud parent of a Lighthouse Young Workshop writer. So um, I think I have all the bases covered. So thank you for coming tonight. Thank you for supporting Lighthouse. Uh, Thank you for making really cool kids who like to write and stuff. What did two writers, two writers. Yes, two writers. Didn't I say two? Did I say one? I think of them as one unit. I have two daughters and they're kind of um, the person, the person giving me feedback is that's my wife, Andrew Dupree, the program director of Lighthouse Writers Workshop. Um, so I'm always looking for new ways to talk about why I think literature matters and why creative writing for kids is important. So um, when you have to do research, probably like a few of you in the audience, what do you do? You go to Google and you'll say, why is creative writing important for kids? And you ask that. <laughs> And then you write verbatim what, what comes down. So just, <clears throat> so just for fun, I did that earlier today, because I, I like to research. I'm an avid researcher. Um, and I found this really great site by this woman. Her name is Pam Allen, and she's the um, director of Lit World and Lit Life. And they're both organizations dedicated to school improvement and children's rights as readers, writers, and learners. I like that. They're, it, it's an inherent right for kids to be readers, writers, and learners. I think that's really great. So she, said, she came up with this really great list, and I'm just going to read it to you. Um, five reasons of why writing is important for a kid. Number one, I feel like this is like a David Letterman top ten list, but it isn't. It's, it's not funny. Um, well, he goes from ten to one, so I'm, I'm not going to be that dramatic. Uh, writing builds confidence in a child's sense of herself and her voice. I suppose that can happen for boys, too. Um, <laughs> Writing helps kids create and strengthen their identities. I think that's an important thing. Also lets them try out other identities, you know, like vampire, superhero, you know, dragon slayer, things like that. Um, Writing fosters a child's emotional growth and gives him and her coping skills for dealing with life's many highs and lows. And as someone who um, was a writer when I was young, I totally, completely agree with that. I think that's a very important thing. She also says, writing helps kids develop critical thinking skills. It helps them understand and communicate complicated ideas, which I think is also very important. Sometimes I think we tend to oversimplify things, um, and writing embraces complexity. And finally, writing leads to guaranteed improvement in academic achievement. I guarantee, (laughs) guarantee that. It's in writing somewhere. I can't find the the certificate that you'll get if your kid takes a workshop. Anyway, so, again, thank you. Thank you for your support. Thank you for listening to me. And um, 
Thanks again for your kids, and I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Meg Nix. I'm the program director, um, for those who don't know me. And I hope everybody got a book. Aren't these so pretty? Oh, my gosh. I love them. Um, And I love everything in them. Um, So inside, there's writing from public schools, private schools, inner city, suburban, um, workshops here, workshops far away. Um, So I think this is just testament to the best young writers in Denver and around Denver. So um, please pick one up if you're in it. Um, Well, all the young writers get one for free, and then you can buy extra copies over there as well. Um, I was thinking last night about um, why young writers are so different from adult writers, because I take classes here too. And I think um, the three things that I came up with are that they never dread writing. It's amazing. And that is something that I wish I had retained sometimes. I still, I love writing, but it gets harder. And so it's so cool to be around people who just launch right in as soon as you give them a prompt or as soon as they have an idea. And I know many of them just spend their free time doing it. So that's a lesson to me. Um, I, I was reading an essay last night by Jane Smiley. Um, It's called The Listener Also Instructs, which I think is interesting for the audience. That um, Well, here's a quote from it. Um, She writes that a novel, and I would say a poem or an essay as well, um, is a spot where language, movement, feeling, and thought gel for a moment. It is not an object or a possession. It is an act of love. Um, And I think that's another thing that young writers bring um, to a classroom is that um, there's a real sense of love there between the writers and each other in their own work, in the way that they listen, um, and and they're just so vulnerable to each other. Um, It's really cool. So um, as an audience, too, this essay is about how that's, that's a relationship. Um, so tonight, know that you're receiving this act of love from them and from their workshop <laughs> groups. Um, and, and as I read that quote about literature being language, movement, and feeling, the other thing is that young writers are always moving, which I think <laughs> helps them to be a different type of people to work with. Um, and it's refreshing that they always are. Um, So thanks, everybody, again, for being here, and thank you, young writers. Um, I wanted all the instructors to stand up because they are totally the lifeblood of the Young Writers Program. Um, So if you've taught any young writers, please stand up. Um, and to just add quickly to what Mike said, we're also supported by the Bloomfield Family Foundation, the Care Foundation, the Kinder Morgan Foundation, the Sheila Fortune Foundation, the Virginia Hill Foundation. People think that what we do is pretty cool, and that's, that's you guys. Um, TW Telecom and, and people um, like parents who are in the room. So thank you, parents, also. Let's applaud the parents as well. So I could say a lot about each instructor, but um, Melinda Miller is just going to kick it off, and we're going to give the rest of the night to the young writers. 
Thanks, Meg. Our first reader tonight is Emerson Dupree Hugh, um, Henry. I don't know how she found her way to the workshops, but she has. <laughs> I don't know. Um, she's a sixth grader at the Holstrom School. I've had Emerson in several classes, and she's a joy. Um, tonight, she's most recently, um, I taught a class down at the Colorado History Museum and on the Dust Bowl, and she's going to read a piece from that. Um, but I have a little t- story about her. If you read anything you read on Facebook, which Mike posted it, so you know, have to take it under consideration. But she walked out of school one day with a sticky on her head that said, intentionally left blank. She's very witty, <laughs> but you'll hear her read, and you can definitely tell it was there's nothing blank in her mind at all. <laughs> and me? Um, So this piece is a short story, and it is entitled Black Sunday. The sound of the wind chime clattering with a ring on my deck woke me. I pulled my floral sheets above my head and kept my breath short. I heard doors rip open and slam close. I could almost hear the glass on the windows bending slightly in, in the wind. I tried to calm myself in vain. I could see faint roses on my blanket. Maybe hiding would work after all. The surge had long passed by the time I was dreaming. I remember waking in a cold sweat because of a nightmare, wanting to warn my family of something terrible. But by the time I reached the dust-covered breakfast table, I had forgotten it. All we had was a jug of dusty water and four hungry stomachs. When I worked up the nerve to look out the window, I was shocked to find a clear blue sky. No dust, just a dome of blue waves. My mother decided to trade in town. I grabbed a basket and went outside beneath the great azure sky. I found many corn stalks full grown, but many cows dead. When I returned, my family had filled cabinets with with corn, and my father and I drove a basket to the market. My father parked our truck and we set out. When my father and I returned, we had two dead rabbits we had two dead rabbits and 15 eggs. Around noon, the post came with a letter from May, my cousin. She would arrive tomorrow for a visit, no questions asked. I was shocked. May had been a close friend, but she now lived in upstate New York and was betrothed to a a Dutchman. She had no idea of the danger of the dust. She was exactly like I was at first, but my mother wouldn't see it as a lamb to slaughter. She would see it as a pleasant visit. The night was restless. No dust came, no clattering of the wind chime, just dead silence. When I fell asleep, I saw my beautiful cousin in a fancy dress with her bright smile, suddenly devoured by a black wall of dust. That morning, my entire family had breakfast. Well, my sister and I got an egg and my parents got two each. This was momentous, like a cake on your birthday or going out for an ice cream sundae. Though I didn't enjoy it as much because May was coming. My mother sang as she swept the house. My sister hummed as she dusted. My father whistled as he tended to the fields, for it was another clear day. I picked a few baskets of corn, traded for a dead chicken this time, because of the fancy dinner my mother had planned. The lack of dust made me shiver. What if it was like saving money? You normally buy an egg a day, but one day you don't. Then the next day day you can buy two eggs. 
What if the dust was collecting for a full-out raid? I quickly swept the thought from my mind, terrified. A beautiful, shining black car pulled up in front of our house at about noon. A glimmering May stepped out gracefully, taking a deep breath with her eyes closed. As she exhaled, she opened the most dark and mystifying eyes I had ever seen. She was beautiful and wore a beautiful and wore a blue and white satin dress. My mother nearly ripped the door off its hinges to greet her. By the time dinner rolled around, May had chatted me up about Mr. Cherryburn, her soon-to-be husband. He had well-kept brown hair, bright lime eyes, and a castle, or that's how I took it. The sleeping arrangements had apparently been made with no say from me. May would sleep in my room. I remembered when my family still lived in Newport with May and her family. She would bring her stuffed bears and dolls and we would throw tea parties with a miniature china tea set. We were never permitted to sleep in the same room, for we would stay up all night laughing and playing as little girls do. However, all we did that night, all we did that night was warn each other about the dust. I didn't suspect Black Sunday. I didn't know it would come so soon. Thank you. That was great. Our next reader is Savion Harris. He's a sophomore who's on the honor roll at Venture Prep High School. He's a visual artist. He draws a lot and a writer, Both uh, writes both fiction and poetry. And he's recently been published in the National Journal, Rattle, um, put out a youth edition, and he has a poem in there. He's going to read uh, two poems, one as a riddle poem, and the other one is something he wrote just a couple weeks ago in a class here. The poem I'm going to read first is called Thy Crispy Love. Its beauty lay within a most awful beast, its smell foul and rotten. But I have found her. I released her from her sour keep within the belly of a snouted demon. I lay her body in a hot bed, more of a bath, even of liquid gold. And I wait for her rawness to be reborn. She sizzles. She is a most beautiful sight to see. Her skin is as brown as maple wood, and her curves, they are more like waves off a gentle sea. Looking at her makes me think of snow, cause she sounds like the crisp snow beneath my feet. To describe her is, shall I say, more than a mouthful. She may seem odd to most, she may not be the healthiest choice in my life. I love her and I will not let her slip through my fingers again. I have lost her once, I won't lose her again. This time I spend every last savory moment with her. Oh, the sound of her name makes me melt. Her name, her name is Bacon. (laughs) The second poem is called Contents of Love. Love is not a flower, it is a vine. It grows everywhere in each direction. It feels like... It feels warm and smells like pine, a shield that offers unlimited protection. It grows everywhere in each direction. Love is not a want, it is a need, a shield that offers unlimited protection. It fights off the temptation of greed. Love is not a want, it is a need. Whenever our hearts are broken, we use it as glue. It fights off the temptation of greed. 
When we have a bloody nose, we use it as tissue. When our hearts are broken, we use it as glue. When our when we build relationships, we use it as a tool. When we have a bloody nose, we use it as tissue. Anyone who says they don't love is a fool. We build relationship we build relationships when we build relationships, we use it as a tool. We hold it back from others when we wish to scold. Anyone who says they don't love is a fool. Love is a gift unworn and eternally gold. We hold it back from others when we wish to scold. Love is a butterfly, an insect, not a bug. Love is a gift unworn and eternally gold. We share it every, a little every time that we hug. Thank you. When you guys look at the journal, read back through his Bacon poem. He wrote that. We were doing riddle poems. He wrote it kind of in one sitting. And if you go back and look at the clues, but we were still at the end. We didn't know what it was until he said Bacon. And <laughs> your reaction, you heard the same thing. Um, so our next reader is Christian Wilson. He is a seventh grader at Maury Middle School. One thing that um, amazes me about Christian is he is lightning fast and very funny. And, you know, I'm a slow writer, and these kids always just really humble me. But uh, Christian usually has us rolling in the aisles. He's very funny. So, Christian, there he is. Um, so... First, I'm reading a riddle poem. I am the night and hope's burning light. To enforce what I am, I never eat, nor do I sleep. But I am bats and beetles, robins and bees. An eye for an eye, a life for a life. I right all wrongs, I reverse all strife. I'm wise and old, unbiased and cold. Wonderful and true, I do what I am when what I am is due. What am I? And... The answer is justice. So, yeah. uh, my second piece is a screenplay for a short film I wrote. Fade in, exterior house, day. Shelley, nine, walks out of the house and down the sidewalk. She walks towards Franklin, 50 through 70. He wears an old timey fast food uniform. Franklin, do you like corn dogs? <laughs> Shelly turns and looks at him. Franklin, do ya? Shelly nods. Franklin, I loved corn dogs when I was alive. Shelly furrows her brow in confusion. Franklin, I'm dead. <laughs> Franklin sighs. Franklin, when I was a kid, I wanted to be the best corn dog salesman ever. So I got a job as a fry cook. I made burgers and fries and hot dogs and corn dogs. <laughs> he looks at Shelly. She nods at him. Franklin, whenever I was home, I experimented with different sausages and recipes and ratios between the two. <laughs> then one day, I finally found it. He looks at her and smiles. Franklin, the perfect corn dog. I ran down the street as fast as I could to my restaurant. 
I tripped. Broke my head open and died instantly. (laughs) Rub's head. The worst part? Can't remember my recipe. (laughs) Shelly looks at him sadly and runs back to her house. Franklin, wait! Come back! Exterior house. Later. Shelly runs out of the house, a paper in hand, up to Franklin. She gives it to him. It's a crayon picture of Franklin and a bunch of corn dogs. Big words along the top reads, Best corn dog man ever. Franklin looks at her and smiles. Fade out. Thank you. Hello. I'm Marie Astorello, and I direct a program called Boom at Manuel High School. And it's not just a writing program, but it's also a literary magazine. So we take the best writing. We actually produce a magazine of the students' writing. And there are some back there. So when you're walking out or taking a break, feel free to to grab one and see what we're up to. I am here to introduce Ryan Dean, who is a wonderful... Well, she wants to be a fiction writer. Let's put it that way. That's that's her dream in life. But she's also a wonderful poet and essayist and all-around leader, which is why she ended up to be the uh, editor-in-chief of the magazine. So she's the cheerleader for the program. She recruits a lot of students and will teach other students when they're not feeling as inspired. She'll get out there and, and she'll help other students write as well. Very proud of her, and she's going to read two pieces today. So Ryan Dean. poem is entitled Mazes of Me. Fingertips. Thin layers of me packaged in mazes of microscopic lines. Fibers of paper sinking, a casualty of carelessness, caught in strings of dead cells. Hair. Naps and curls coaxed into a ponytail, frizzing from the daily heat. Smoothed back habitually. Palms, nerves flattened to feel, lines that tell the soul, creased to grasp at nothing, yet holding everything. My next piece is The Folds of Life. I am so tired of school. What the administration calls an education is irrelevant to the life I want to lead. Then again, looking at the statistics in this united realm, I won't even have a life. I'll be dead, pregnant, in jail, or on welfare in about a year. That's why my focus is schoolwork, grades, the stress of deadlines, stress. That's what makes the world go round. Some say it's money or love, but it's not. Stressing about work, school, the boss, wife, or husband, everything and everyone poses an issue and creates a problem that swirls around and weighs you down. I am 
not exempt from the social stigmas of life. I'm a teenager, full of my own, well, awkwardness. This is a critical time of fake friends, boring classes, a dire need for money and material items. A search for Jesus, Satan, or nothing at all. Drugs, alcohol, sex, pain, heartbreak, suicide, basketball. Best friends, boyfriends, girlfriends, experimentation, fights, goth, loner, emo, jock, superstar, suck-up, liar, sleaze. Labels determine our future. Go to college, work at McDonald's, become a drug addict. Every idea, every decision is shoved down your throat, and we are stuck. Consequences, actions, cause and effect. Stupidity, or maybe an unexplainable intelligence guiding us that science calls hormones. <laughs> Why fill our heads with so much when it just fades in 10 years anyway? An endless ramp. Struggles, problems, <coughs> stress, absurd BS, emotional baggage, death. Adults become numb to, they were, to the way they were as children forgetting the pretend tea parties, crazy concerts, and other stupid things they did. I wonder what would happen if the puppet strings were cut. If we had to create our own world of organized crazy, would it all fall apart? Would we become terrorists, driven to insanity by our own decisions? Sit back and listen to the time bomb tick. But I am not a statistic. I will not be put into a category or tamed. My voice, our voices will ring out and will be heard. Hi, I'm Andrea Doré, and I teach fiction and nonfiction here at the Lighthouse Writers Youth Program. And it's my great pleasure to introduce our first reader this evening in my group, and that is Cassidy Cole. Cassidy is an eighth grader at the Girls' Athletic Leadership School. And she has been writing at Lighthouse for about four years, and dance is a large part of her life, as writing is a large part of her life. And it's obvious to me that Cassidy hears music because there's music in her words, and we will get to hear that music tonight. Cassidy. So I wrote a memoir. Um, it's titled Wait for Me. It's dedicated to my aunt. She always would read me a story of a little girl, and she always said she reminded her of me. She would always tell me about that book and how it said that all the stars are holes in the sky, that they are the light of heaven coming from the other side, and someday every single person would be on the other side, where the light comes from. She, would, she said if you really tried, you could count the lights from heaven. She then would tell me to hold on to the grass, or you could be lifted up straight from the ground, and there you'll be, yet another light from heaven glittering through the holes in the sky. I just laughed. Wait for me, I would giggle. Wait for me. I guess she loosened her grip on the grass that one morning, 
And she was quite mercifully lifted through the holes in the sky, but left her world on the other side a shallow stream, smoky, smoky, murky, and bewildered. Wait for me, I would whisper. Wait for me. When I was little, I remember never, never being able to sleep when I was in Suwannee, Georgia. Always worried she would go somewhere without me. Fighting the sleep in my eyes and the haze outside, I would peer my little head through the window every few minutes to see if her white Lexus was still parked in the fog of her driveway. When I saw her, I would come running, tripping over my own feet and the patches of grass soaked with humidity and dismal mud. Wait for me, I would holler. Wait for me. Stupid grass. Too weak. Just too weak. Why did she leave without me? Why did she let go of that grass? Was it too brittle? Too dry? Wait for me, I would cry. Wait for me. A nightmare doesn't quite faze me. The idea of a dream becoming so real is what frightens me. Christmas Eve, I saw her face, etched in the clouds, cheekbones so prominent against her lilac lips, and her eyes the most poised shade of blue. Her toes enveloped in the spun-out grass, sun rays slipped off the tip of her nose, and she smelled of rain. Damp hair and slippery skin. Wait for me, I mumbled. Wait for me. Why do people have to die? Have to cry? I was with her, her fragile smile, her graceful laugh, and the idea of my world without her seemingly didn't seem real. Never crossed my mind. Lights were stringed on roofs. Branches of Christmas trees lay with gifts. Tightly stringed around them were bows, and empty plates with cookie crumbs filled houses. The snow covered the grass that one day, and my world without her was literal. Shady, bitter, and bleak. Wait for me, I would yell. Wait for me. She once told me that the stars are holes in the sky, the light of heaven spilling through. The The lights shine brighter now, and the stars are more than few. She always preached... Death may leave a heartache no one can heal, she said. But love leaves a memory no one can steal. Wait for me, I would whisper. Wait for me. Thank you. Thank you, Cassidy. It's my great pleasure now to introduce Evan Long. Evan told me that he is a man who needs no introduction. (laughs) However, I'm going to defy him and introduce him. He said that he has no notable accomplishments. And I beg to differ, because when I met Evan, he was in my opinion writing class. And Evan shared his opinions with us. (laughs) He shared insights also on the writing of the other students in the class. Good insights. (laughs) And it was really enjoyable because of the humor and the passion that Evan brought to his work and shared with us. So it is my great pleasure to introduce the man who needs no introduction, (laughs) Evan Long. Okay, so this one's, it says it's untitled, but it's clearly not. (laughs) So um, it's called The Clown's Gauntlet. Um, Carl always wanted something, but he wasn't sure what yet. 
He always felt a touch of goodness and then a feeling of unfulfillment, like he hasn't been born yet. It all came out over a dinner of mutton, which tasted like sweat, but Carl and his dad choked it down to preserve Mom's fragile ego. <laughs> Mom, so, Mom asked, what do you want? I want... I want everything. What would you do without it? I suppose I'd be empty. Then I called tossed and turned. What do I want? What do I really want? Where is it? In heaven or hell or on earth or all the space junk in between? Carl's father was a clown. So was his grandfather and his great-grandfather. Not to mention his great-great-grandfather, his great-great-great-grandfather, and his great-great-great-great-grandfather. The first clown in the land was Carl's great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, Blart. Born in A.D. 932, he was the joy of the kingdom of Mississippi. (laughs) Unfortunately, his great-great-great-great-grandson was banned by the queen. Carl's father was a flop, so they moved into the open country. At three, Carl saw a middle-aged man dance around with a tomato nose. He was scarred. When Carl took off, it was very awkward. On April 15, 1120, Carl told his mother, I want the gauntlet of everything. Okay, don't hurt yourself. And Carl was off. He was walking the trail until he found something he suspected to be a clue. A sign that said, This way to the gauntlet. As Carl trotted through the woods, he did not notice the low rose bush, gnarly and long like the face of a six-foot bandit. Unfortunately, he chose that moment to kick his right foot forward. His foot was tossed and torn, and he fell on his face. His toes were ripped, and cupped after cu- eh, cup after cup of blood splayed on the dirt. Well, it can't get any worse, Paul G- Carl grunted. Thump, when a small tree on his leg. He pulled himself off, and as he skipped in a very awkward fashion, he heard grunting sounds. Soon, he was staring in the face of the best destian the giant, multi-headed rabbit. He sprinted to the closest tree. The beast followed suit, except it hit the tree. It's not over yet. I had to face... Carl's train of thought was delayed when the Ebzai, a giant one-eyed hot dog, fried Carl's tree with a laser beam. (laughs) Okay. Where were we? Oh, yeah. Carl thought for a moment, then brought out a mirror. The next beam bounced off the mirror and overcooked him. The Ebzai. Carl then found the gauntlet. He stood triumphant, raised it like the baboon raising Simba. And then, East Novelty Company. The gauntlet was a prank. For the next two years, the empty Carl became a clown. One day, Carl was putting powdery makeup on a crying little kid when he remembered what brought him to this lowly state. He promptly tossed the whining kid headfirst onto the ground. Then he heard someone call, Message for Carl Clownson. The note read like a telegram. You have seen the faint gauntlet. Stop. Evil men have seized the real gauntlet. Stop. Them with all your ability. Anonymous. (laughs) (laughs) To introduce... Sophie March, I am going to step into the shoes of the esteemed and enigmatic poet J. Diego Fry and share his words about Sophie with you. What struck me about Sophie's poetry was two things. First of all, she's writing verse with a maturity and skill 
that stands out even in a class full of very skillful lighthouse writers. And second, she is fearless in her choices of subject and metaphor and does not shy away from dark or difficult subjects. Listen, and I guarantee that you'll come away with a handful of images that you will not be able to let go. Sophie March. Hi. Um, This is called 17. My mind slips river ribbons across the syllables of your name, and time digs ruts across the landscape of myself. Birthed in the pink of flesh and the white of hospital lights hitting mirrors and syringes, a year falls from lips which cradled promises made to a self turning 16. The light is dim and 17 candles wave like burning buildings. I wanted to let you know I'm sorry. Silken self shivering, stripped in guttural, clouds in my lungs, fingers dripping, wax pooling, and my tongue like a worm, licking lips in snow. My body burned then, orange in December flame. Hello, I'm Kara Lopez Lee, and it was my great privilege to work. It's always my great privilege to teach the kids who, te- who learn from Lighthouse. It's wonderful. Um, this year, I've been working with the children or the children from Maury Middle School and students from Denver Online High School. First, I'm going to introduce to you a Maury Middle School student, and I want to tell you Nell Di Pasquantonio apparently needed to become an excellent writer just to put her name on paper. I had to write myself a pronouncer for that. Anyway, she's a seventh grader from Maury. Um, this busy girl has earned awards in district athletics and the Destination, Destination Imagination Regionals. She's an honors band member who plays both the flute and the piano. Her dream is to become either a genetic engineer or a fashion designer. <laughs> Which both may make some strange sense to you when you hear her read an excerpt from her very delightful story, The Sky Stunt. Now? This was better 12 pages ago. Just saying. <laughs> My brother is stupid. He's not the kind of stupid where you know you're joking, he knows you're joking, and you really both love each other on the inside. Steve's the kind of stupid where you couldn't dream of doing something that immature. He's still my brother, but he's still stupid. (laughs) Recently, he and his crazy friend Gino have gotten more competitive. Steve ate a chicken, so Gino ate two turkeys and a baked potato. Gino snapped four pens at one time, so Steve snapped six pens and one of those stringy eraser thingies. A few days ago, I overheard them talking. Come on, man, this could make your career, Gino pleaded. I don't know. I'm not as young as I used to be, Steve replied. What's happened to you? You're the guy who jumped the fence on the tricycle. I could see Steve contemplating his choices. Would he risk his life for more popularity? Later, I saw them head upstairs carrying 50 plastic shopping bags and a helium pump. (laughs) After they left, I snuck into Steve's room to see what they were planning. Above his sea of dirty clothes and Guinness World Record posters sat a whiteboard. It said, bags plus pump equals globe, I think. There was also a picture of a person in a circle. Then it dawned on me, he's going to make a giant balloon bubble. Steve in a floating bubble in the sky.
<laughs> Three days later, I glanced out the window at Washington Middle School and saw the giant balloon rising from the field. They really didn't waste time with their death traps. I ran to it like a beacon and tried to shake Steve into reality. You realize you could die? Yeah, Steve said, but according to my math, the added force to my weight and the helium's weakening lift power, the bubble should only fly a maximum of 20 feet. And there are ropes. <laughs> oh, that sounds reasonable. If you want to, Bethany, you can hold one. Did I really want to be the little fifth grader clinging to her brother in front of everyone? No, I said. I'll trust Gina with that one. I'll just watch. Steve climbed in. He was practically meditating as Gino untied the ropes and took volunteers from the audience to hold each one. Steve lifted up into the spring breeze. The sun reflected off the shopping bags, giving them the glow of a god descending from the skies. <laughs> in that serene moment, I saw why he wanted to do this. This unique experience was so beautiful, so unsurpassed that it just begged to be done. Then, a ball from the nearby soccer game sent one of the rope holders flying into another, causing them all to let go. The bubble shifted, and Steve's face high above us was most definitely alarmed. Panicking, I ran towards one of the ropes, but I was too late. Steve drifted away from us towards our house. The breeze blew him towards the roof and into the needle of our weather vane. I ran across the street as fast as my legs could carry me, joined by more kids. My parents rushed out, following our gazes to Steve, who waved nervously at them. My dad tossed a picnic blanket at me. Bethany, you and Gino arrange everyone so we can catch Steve. We all lifted the blanket into the air. Then there was a pop. The bubble gracefully fell towards us. Steve landed gently on the blanket. I was relieved he was alive. I can't believe you tried to do this, Mom yelled. But wasn't I so cool and godlike, Steve said. <laughs> yes, I guess you were, honey. Mom gave him an understanding squeeze. Okay, kids, you can leave. The show's over. They filed out, high-fiving each other. Just then, our little sister, Lindsay, came outside. What happened, she asked. Steve did something amazing. He really is amazing, outstanding, and definitely not stupid. <laughs> Our next reader is Destiny Gonzalez. Destiny is a sophomore at Denver Online High. Her favorite subjects are writing and anything to do with art. She plans to study journalism and photography in college and also wants to be a tattoo artist on the side, which I think is pretty cool. A very well-rounded teen, she plays soccer. She's involved in both the 4-H LAM project and in Art from Ashes. She has a strong dislike of pennies, which I'm not sure I understand, but a deep compassion for people, as you'll hear when she reads an excerpt from her story, Society's Consequence. Destiny? Society's Consequence. Turning of tires as they screech along the far, long intersections. My pale skin is scorched by the rays of sun. As I dwell upon my sunburned skin, my mind reveals my own truth. The world has not one worry about my daily situations. I remember the dirty, dry sensations on my lips. Boom! The sound breaks my eardrums. The other team is throwing grenades. We're hiding in ditches, out of breath, and gasping for air. That is only smog from the jets. My eyes are full of darkness, and my body feels weightless. 
My existence feels lesser and lesser by the minute. Get up, Dean, my buddy John shouts. We need to go. Get up now. I wake up to see a businessman telling me to get out of the doorway. I'm back to reality, but I can still feel dirt on my lip. Is there a chance for change, I say? I always catch myself talking to nobody. I've probably gone mad. Somebody bends down and drops a a quarter in my tin can. Every Sunday, I walk around downtown Denver because the Broncos are playing, and maybe generosity will cross people's minds as they pass by me. The worth of a quarter to me is the worth of the Capitol's gold dome to them. I sit as joyful laughter sinks into my brain, dreaming, if only I could be one of them. Here's how much hope I have left. It's smaller than a millimeter and smaller than the air itself. My hope has been disappearing since Iraq scarred my memories. It's a rainy Monday, so now I just need to stay dry. I walk into a convenience store, but the clerk kicks me out because he thinks I'm stealing. I don't blame him, but I'm fed up with the rude vibes I get from the people I used to protect. This man has the nerve to tell me, get lost. I reply, if you had any knowledge of my past, you'd be thanking me. Check your head, man. Nobody takes time to ask why I've ended up on the street corners. They're worried I'm a crazy man trying to steal their car. However, the only thing crazy about me is that I protected people who are completely selfish. How did I end up on the corner of the road? What happened to the supportive family I waved goodbye to before I stepped onto the plane to Iraq? I wish I could go back to the day my mom and sister waved their soft, worryless hands at me, saying, Goodbye, son, I love you, and see you later, big brother. I remember the rainy days when mom and I would play board games, drinking hot chocolate. I wonder if she's still in the same house. Curiosity overpowers my mind. And now I need to see it for myself. I walk the lonesome streets to find my past life. There it is. Memories go through my head like a beam. I remember when my sister was still in my mother's tummy. Mom and I played goldfish on the light brown table, the table full of stains from her nail polish remover. I walk up to the house's window and wipe off the dust with my worn-out hand. I expect to see my family crying for their long-lost son and big brother, but they're playing Monopoly. And my mom is letting my little sister Karen win. I know because she used to do the same thing for me, just to see me smile. She gives Karen a high five, smiles gleam from their faces. My eyes drift towards my old window. What used to be a young boy's room where kiss posters hung is now a storage room filled with boxes. My room used to be royal blue, my favorite color, but now it is painted white. Disappointment fills my size. My presence has escalated to the air above the house. The air nobody ever bothered to notice. It's gone now. Okay, I'm going to introduce the last batch of readers. Um, And the first one is Cassidy Nix, who was the first student I taught with the same last name as me, um, even though it's spelled differently. Um, And I think Cassidy has probably taken more classes at Lighthouse since I've been here than any other young writer. She is like our superstar regular. Um, and she just brings a real pleasantness to workshops. She's honest, and her work is honest, and it's both easy to read and deeply felt. So, Cassidy. Hi. 
Hi, I'm going to read a very short poem I wrote. Ideas, brimming with ideas, too many to count, too many to find. They fill every nook, cranny, and space. So many, so very many ideas. That's it. Um, the next reader is Abby Lannert, and Abby, um, she's a senior, not yet, <laughs> um, she's a senior at Lakewood High School, and um, she's been <clears throat> in Teen Council, which is our group of high schoolers who come every Wednesday for the whole year, and she's been on Teen Council for three years, two years, three, I don't know. Um, she is... Um, her work has this amazing clarity to it. And if you're a writer, you know how hard that is to achieve clarity. Um, she, she has this ear for the right words and then finds the words that please the ear. She has like such a music to her writing, um, as you'll see. And it's funny, in our group, we talk about how <laughs> Abby's poetry almost feels sometimes British, sometimes Asian. It's like old-fashioned in a way that speaks to her maturity. I think um, maybe she's an old soul or something deep down. Um, so, Abby Lannert. Um, so I'll be reading two pieces, and the first is titled Estefania Buttoning Her Coat. Somewhere between the last time I saw you and the time I am seeing you now, you became fuller. A rounded peach, soft and smooth, at last ripe. You were not this way before. Your fingers twitched as they did up the buttons of your jacket. You would forget one and have to come back to it, or skip the top buttonhole and have to start all over again when you saw that the bottom was two different lengths. Now it takes only a moment to do up your jacket. And maybe it is because you have owned it for three years now, but I think it is because your fingers have grown steadier. And then the second is titled, As a Meadow. Mountain creeks lined his eyes. His hair was forested with thick-bowed spruces, and his shoulders were flat and broad like the mesas behind my house. He had hands forever brown and dirty, as though the earth was too much a part of them to ever be washed away. I don't see myself falling in love with you. His flowered fingers brushed against my cheek as he said it, as though I were only a weak breeze. The creaks in his eyes rushed by so quickly that even as I looked at them, they altered and were not the same. He was a landscape as absorbing as the Andes Mountains to the south and the Appalachians to the east, as endearing as the small dandelions of summer and the spindly yellow aspen leaves of fall. And I, for my part, had already fallen for him, weakening my knees until I felt myself encompassed by the meadow of him. But that's just it. He was as a meadow, teeming with life, but not quite alive himself. And I loved him as I loved all landscapes at that time, as pretty things to be photographed or painted and then hung above the living room sofa in a nice frame. Not the sort of thing you pay attention to each time you enter the room, but the sort of thing that becomes so a part of your habit that you altogether forget it is there. 
So when he said to me, through lips like yams with breath like that which saunters off the sea, I don't see myself falling in love with you. It did not break me or even draw hairline fractures across my skin. Rather, I was glad. For a boy such as this, who has grown strong under the care of sun and water, and who resembles the Earth's geography so strikingly that he must be a photo of its likeness. A boy such as this is far too beautiful and rare to be hung above the living room sofa, (laughs) no matter how nice the frame may be. And our last reader um, is Emma Minor, and um, she's a sophomore at George Wash, a junior. <laughs> I lose track of you guys' years. I just want you to stay here forever, so I'm just bumping you down in years. Um, she is a junior at George Washington High School, and Emma's work is funny in a really interesting way. Um, she plays with form a lot, but she's almost purely writing nonfiction now. I think when she started coming here, she wasn't writing that, and she just like found her niche, and it is where she belongs. Um, so you'll hear that, and she, and she has just a, an energy all her own. So, Emma. Oh man. <laughs> oh, um, it's sort of there we go. Uh, it's sort of like an outline type thing. I I don't really know. We're just gonna roll with it. This is called scared. One trypanophobia, the fear of needles and injections, characterized into three categories. One, the fear of an object to be cured through therapy. Two, the fear of the injection to be cured through therapy. Three, the fear of the human performing the injection to be cured by learning how to do so yourself. It is common. 80% of the U.S. admits apprehension about shots. 35% have an actual phobia. A, a boxer wouldn't go to an overseas match because he couldn't get the vaccinations. B, Conan O'Brien could not get a flu shot on TV despite being asked to. This is not because he was on TV, and it was not for the audience. He doesn't get shots. The reaction a trypanophobe gets is a heightened heart rate when near or discussing the needle. The heart rate drops when, when, when that heart rate drop can kill someone. This is the end. Two, pyrophobia, the intense fear of fire in all of its forms. Mine came in two. One, hot lava. Two, fire alarms. A, documentaries on volcanoes and lessons in tectonic plates were enough to cure me of number one. B, I grew out of fire alarms. Three, phobia, suffix meaning fear, derived from phobos, god of fear. One, a phobia does not mean apprehension. Two, a phobia does not mean discomfort. Screaming because you found an unexpected spider does not mean you have arachnophobia, the fear of spiders. Three, a phobia is irrational. Although the fear of sharks isn't without warrant, sharks aren't a common predator and only a few people die every year in a shark attack. Four, a phobia is this. A, shaking. B, a rush of adrenaline. C, a fear of danger even though there is none. D, panic. E, sweating. F, adrenaline. G, adrenaline. H, adrenaline. I, adrenaline. J, adrenaline. Phobias are mental illnesses, not evolutionary reactions to vertigo. Four, earwigs. 
like dark, damp places, pests. One, one once crawled up my stomach after a bath. Two, they do not live in your ear. A, they cannot get into your brain from your ear. B, they will not lay eggs in your ear. C, earwigs, in fact, have nothing to do with your ear. I propose a new name. Five, existential fear. One, examples include A, death. B, failure. C, unimportance. Two, the universe is infinite and ever-expanding, and we have existed for only seconds and are less than a speck in the grand scheme of things. Cured through sleepovers, deep conversations, and in rare cases, therapy. (laughs) Let's clap one more time for all of the young writers here tonight. Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.